So that was 10 minutes or so. I wish you would have told me a little sooner. Okay. For those of you at home, ask somebody that's here today. To know who's here today, give me a call. I'm here today. I will try to connect you and bring you back up to speed. But the picture here of recognizing the need to love your neighbor that is commanded in Leviticus is the idea of treating others the way you want to be treated. These scribes and Pharisees refused to care for anyone else in the same way that they cared for themselves. So their neighbors were other scribes and other Pharisees because they met each other on the level they wanted to meet. That was their neighbor. They had changed it. They dropped, took out the little phrase, as yourself. They didn't have to treat everybody else the same way they were or the way that they wanted to be treated. They had to recognize here that I totally sidetracked from everything just happened. I know. Going to the second one with your neighbor. Again, they watered this down. The, the scribes and Pharisees had a very, very narrow definition. One who was nearby is literally what a neighbor is. Anyone that I come in contact with. Remember the, the story about the Good Samaritan? They, they said, who is my neighbor? And that's the story he gave them out of Luke 10, 29 to 37. That's my neighbor. The Pharisees did not like that story and reacted to it. But it's literally one who's nearby. The Pharisees narrowed it down. They changed it to people who were like them, people that they preferred, people that they approved. It sounds like modern-day politicians. You ever seen somebody break away from their party in politics today? Not even become a believer necessarily, although that happens once in a while. But they just decide not to vote with the rest of the people. Well, how are they treated? If they don't knuckle under, they'll work on it for a little while. If they don't knuckle under, pretty soon they're pushed out to the fringe. Then they're pushed out altogether. Then they start bad-talking them. They're trying to put pressure on them. They take away their money. They take away their positions in the party. And you see this happening all the time. This is just like the Pharisees. Don't go against me. Don't try to do something that is not what I like, which is what Jesus did every day. They, they change it. They go, obviously my neighbor is not tax gatherers. They're profane, extortionists, traitors, renegade Jews. They're disloyal to our own people. So my neighbor can't be a tax gatherer. It's not sinners. These criminals, prostitutes, adulterers, lawbreakers, and proud people. Nah, they can't be my neighbors. I'm not hanging around with them. I definitely don't want it to be the deformed, blind lame, lepers, deaf, dumb, these sick people, some of them even demon possessed. They can't be my neighbor. I'm clean. I'm not getting around them. And then he talks about the, the commoners, these poor people that are just ignorant of the law. They obviously don't go to the temple often enough or, or the, to the synagogue or they don't pay attention or they have a low IQ because they're not connected with the truth. And they just put them down. These, they're unclean, lowly, these ordinary commoners. I can't get around them. They'll pull me down. These are the people that the Pharisees reacted to. And Jesus says, this is what you've been taught. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That is a false second statement and a misunderstanding of the first statement. 
Do we love others as we love ourselves? The other day I'm driving down 6th Street heading to 97 to go someplace, and here's this guy walking with a cast on, and it's about 5 degrees. And I got past him the way for it. I kind of dawned on me what was going on. I, I looked, there's nobody coming. Probably broke a law. I backed up probably 100 yards. And I rolled down the window and I pulled up next to him. I said, you okay? You need a ride? He goes, no, I'm fine. Which wasn't what I was expecting. He wasn't like all snuggled up in, in a parka and everything. He had fairly normal clothes and a lightweight coat on it. And he was limping with this crutch thing. But he didn't want my help. I, I, I didn't ask him. I, he didn't need to explain to me why. But, but you kind of look at this, and it, it's, not, it's not easy to want to do that. Because the moment I offered that, I looked over, and I had a toolbox on the floor and a bunch of tools on the seat. And the back seat, I'm sitting there going, how am I going to get him in here? That's going to take me five minutes just by itself. But, but you start realizing, if I'm going to love him as myself, and if I was in that position, I'd want someone to stop and help me. I've broken down before. I've been stranded in the mountains. I had to hitchhike to get into town to get parts to make repairs to make the car work and get out of there. And I really appreciate it when someone picked me up. So are we loving people like ourselves? It is not going to be convenient. Love is not convenient. God sending his son to earth was not a convenient thing for Jesus Christ. It cost him dearly. This is what the world needs to see out of us. And I'm not saying I'm doing it perfectly. For every time I do it right, I probably have another 10 that I don't do it right at all. I say the wrong thing. But the whole picture here, what they're trying to get at, they were trying to tell the Jews to hate their enemies. Regard them with ill will. Abhor them. Detest them. Vine says this word for hate is a relative preference for one thing over another. So it can be used in a general way. But the, the picture that's being used here is the extreme of abhorrence, of making them detestable. The, sharp, the Pharisees and scribes, they drew this sharp line in the sand. They had their definition for a neighbor, someone who is my friend, my supporter, my defender, who approves of me. He's an insider. He never questions me. He never challenges me. He never goes against me. That's my neighbor. But I need to hate those who are hostile toward me. Adversaries that are critical and dislike me. Outsiders like those Gentiles, those dogs. That's who I need to hate. And he taught the Jews to act like that. You don't have anybody in your life that you treat that way, right? I asked you this question last week. Ask it again today. No responses, no raising of hands. But is there someone that I detest? Is there someone that I rejoice over when they suffer or when they get caught or when they pay? This is what he's trying to do here. To hate your enemy, your adversary, your foe, these outsiders who don't support and defend you. Your, your idea of hating them is to seek revenge. Pay them back for what they have done to you. I had a guy, I remember when I was a teenager, he wasn't nice to me. And one day, he went to church with me, same church I went to, but he wasn't nice to me. One day, he was running up one of the stairs, outside stairs, that were like you can do in California, because it's not zero degrees outside. And he, he starts running upstairs, and he tripped, and went down on the stairs, concrete stairway. And that verse came to my mind. Rejoice not when your enemy stumbles. 
out of Proverbs. I didn't giggle. I offered to help. But again, it was, a, it was a vivid reminder to me that God said, no, this isn't the time that you go, oh, God did that to you because you're so naughty and, and not so nice. Think of Christmas. This idea of hating my energy is, or enemy is to get justice. Let God pay them back. Remember Romans 5, 6 to 8? When we were yet sinners, Christ paid us back. Isn't that what it says? While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. We were as hostile and as much of an enemy as we possibly could be. And Romans 5, 6 to 8 makes that clear. Let me just read it for you, because sometimes you don't take my um, verses seriously. You don't look them up, so I have to make sure you look them up. I do it for you. Great verses. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, someone who was upright and obedient. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. This is the person who's beneficial, the, the sacrificial uh, person who's the hero. You might die for them. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were his enemy. We hated him. We wanted nothing to do with him. And that's when God didn't seek justice for us. He sought a way to take care of our need what he wants us to do to others not what the pharisees were doing or what they were teaching they practice avoidance they did not want to spend any time with them remember luke 18 the, the two of them come into the temple and the pharisees standing up there really proud kind of bragging showing off i'm so great this all the great things i do not like that sinner how was the sinner beating his chest humble that in the background, didn't even feel like it was right for him to come before God. Luke 18, I think, starting about verse 8. And the, the Pharisees looked down on those people instead of realizing, I need to help them. I need to figure out a way to bring them up, and it's going to cost me. But they practiced avoidance. They celebrated when their enemies fell. That was Proverbs 24, 17 that I was talking about. To rejoice not when, you're, when your enemy stumbles. Little verses, that snapshots that lock in that the Holy Spirit can take advantage of. It. It's why I've taught you in all the years of my ministry here for 36 years to read your Bible. To let the scriptures get into you. Not the sermons. That may help to explain some things. But to let the scripture get into us. Treasure it in our hearts that we may not sin against him. Treasure it in our hearts that we may not sin against others. Especially our enemies. So here's what the Pharisees would do and what we as people do sometimes. When I have an enemy around me and I can't get away from them, sometimes I decide to move. Options, move to a different state. Move to a different house in a different city within your state. Move to a different church. Move to a different job. Don't, don't work it out. Don't try to figure out what the problem is and settle down and, and lovingly, humbly Try to make it work. Just move. And the Pharisees would have avoided people. Remember with the, with the Good Samaritan? How the, the Levite and the priest, they walked around them. That's what a lot of people do today. That's not what God is asking us to do. You have somebody at work that you've been praying for their demise? God says, stop doing that. Love them. Don't look for a way to move. Realize that God moved them to you. They're there on purpose. 
It's a perfect opportunity to learn and grow. But the Pharisees also, sometimes they would just gossip. I can't move, so I'm going to distort things. I'm going to lie. I'm going to pay them back with words. I'm going to make them look really, really bad. I'm going to try to get people around them to not like them and to take my side. We never do that either, do we? We always give a good report. We're always looking for a way to build up and to find ways to to make um, people look good. But if I can't move and I shouldn't gossip, then I just find ways to lash out. One of those things we call it is lawsuits. They're going to pay. Sometimes it's physical harm, and I literally lash out. I just punch them right in the nose. Maybe I shoot them. So here's this picture. This is what they have been taught in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Right? And the crowd sitting out there going, yep, that's what we've been told. Then he changes the picture. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies. What? That is so foreign to anything we've been taught. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is what he's trying to stress to them. You mean I'm supposed to be sacrificially devoted to my enemy? Showing patience and kindness. Giving them time. Giving them money and my generosity as 1 Corinthians 13 love is always giving. I'm not to judge them or condemn them. I'm to have that humility, that loving forgiveness that comes in there as well. Not keeping a record of wrongs. I'm to never give up. Love never fails unselfish, steadfast, moving forward the best I can in spite of the situation. As America gets worse, you're going to have, and I'm going to have, many more opportunities to practice this. When they knock on your door, legally or illegally, and they demand that you give them an account of your weapons in your house, we want serial numbers, we want in, we want you to show us where they're located, we want you to unlock the cabinet and let us go through your inventory. If they're in a cabinet, they find out they're on top, it's on top of the refrigerator or on top of some shelf, you're in trouble. How are you going to respond to them? Ah, oh, now I got too personal. I don't have to love them, do I? You better know the law. You better figure out what, what's legally responsible and do it properly. It's up to, what, 18,000 people trying to get... Um, Background checks to buy weapons now in Oregon is just skyrocketed because of what's coming. That's just one example of how the world is squeezing in on us. And that is not one that's a necessity. Guess what you're not taking with you in the rapture? Your guns. I don't know who's going to get them. Sorry, Bob. I don't know who's going to get them, but they're being left behind. So you better make sure they're clean and in the right location. But you name it, there's going to be more individual things. At work, somebody steps on you to get higher up in the job, and they claim something you did was what they did. That never happens, does it? They never stab you in the back to try to make you look bad or make you lose your job so they can move up. And on and on it goes. This is how the Pharisees lived their lives. This is what Matthew 23 is all about. If you want to meditate after your 20 minutes in the Sermon on the Mount, you go up to Matthew 23 and look how Jesus described the Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees. Wasn't a pretty picture. In fact, it would be reversed. These are the people that you would not want to live next door to you. You would move. These are the people that you would be tempted to gossip about. 
and to lash out toward. But Jesus is telling them to love those people, these enemies, these adversaries, the ones that are haters and don't support you. They're wishing you harm. They're trying to hurt you. They're mean. They're impatient. They're judgmental. They're self-righteous. They're greedy. I don't know anybody like that. Or do I? That's the hands. To love my enemies is for me to function in a way that deals with their needs. But then he goes further and he says, pray for those who persecute you. Now I'm moving into the heart. Both of these are are present, active imperatives. These are stress the idea to be loving and to be praying. This isn't one thing where you go to God and say, oh, I gave them a minute. I prayed for them this week. That's all I'm giving them. They'll get another minute next Monday. No, this is a lifestyle. This is a present tense command. It's active. Plead with God for them. Cry out for your enemies. Salvation. That they can see Jesus Christ in you. That you won't lash out to them. But you'll submit. You'll you'll be like like the dog that, that shows the neck when they go after you. And you go, yeah, but they'll bite me. Just like they bit Jesus. And God turned that around and used that. And that's what he's going to do with us as well. I'm appealing to God for their good, their well-being, that God would bless them, that they would be right with God. I'm defending them before God. Isn't that what Moses did? Don't, Don't wipe them out. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans? That he said, I wish myself accursed for the deliverance of my own people. This is what Jesus said when he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But he says, these people that you're praying for may be persecuting you. This is an interesting word. It just means pursuing, generally. But when they translate it this way in a negative form, it's the idea of pursuing to harm. They're going after us to cause pain and suffering. They're seeking to stop our service for God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. Way over in the, toward the end of the New Testament. 1 Peter, it's right before 2 Peter. Does that help? After James. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. To think that we're doing something different than what they did 2,000 years ago. He says to to those, uh, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. This is how I'm responding to my enemies who persecute me. Just like Jesus would have. He said, in explaining this, he goes down. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's trying to explain here that you need to be just like me. Sons of your father. Now there's two words in the New Testament without taking a lot of time. But one is the word sons used here. Another is the word children. 
The children describe, the term child describes a spiritual birth. That you become a child of God in this um, standing that you have. But the word sons is a spiritual relationship. It describes more that you act like a child of God. It's describing your character. And this is what he's after when he brings us up. When he says to them, uh, in order that you may be sons of your father. Remember back in chapter 5, verse 9? I know you memorized all this. 5, 9. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Sorry, I skipped down. No, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. My character as a peacemaker describes me as a son of God. My character with an enemy that hates me. My character with an enemy that may be crucifying me, and I'm still a peacemaker, declares me to be a son of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. This describes here this legitimate offspring from God who proved their family connection by their character, by their conduct. This is what he's emphasizing. You can say that you're a child of God, but you need to show it. That's what proves it. You may be a child by birth, and it may be real, but it's going to be a son by relationship and by practice. So being children, you show this family resemblance, like father, like son. This is what he's after here. And he says, just like the son who takes care of us, he sends sunshine, our basic need, and rain, another basic need. Remember what he said back in Romans 12, last week when I talked about vengeance? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And he quotes out of Proverbs 25 when he says, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Where's that food come from? <laughs> Typically from the sunshine. If it comes from bread, it's from grain that's grown by the sun. Feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. That's typically where rainwater came or was provided. Into the lakes, into the rivers, into the streams. And so he's saying the same thing here. Just like God does, you need to feed and give a drink to those who you may consider your enemy. Interesting to me. Is that easy to do? It's hard. Unless you die to self, and then it's really easy. We're the only thing in the way. When I don't care how people treat me or what people think of me or how they sue me at law or, or, or how they mistreat me or how they pursue me in some persecution way, when that doesn't matter to me as much as their life, their relationship with Jesus Christ, their eternal destiny, when those things matter more to me, I will love them. I will pray for them consistently. I will thank God that they're in my life. Because they're conforming me to the image of his son. This is what he gets out when he wraps up in verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? And he uses a little word for. They call it a causal gar in the Greek, but it, it can be translated because if, third class condition, the same idea, generally true of most people. This is just normal. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? This is a practice that goes on regularly. Those aren't my enemies. To the Pharisees, if they, people loved them who, who they loved, they had a great relationship. No problem whatsoever. And so he's trying to bring that out. Love for love has no special reward. It's not a lot of work. Tax gatherers do the same thing. 
And they're self-centered and very greedy. Selfish in their relationships. What have you done? You're not impressing God. You're not walking by the Spirit necessarily because you can love just as a human being without God. And people are sacrificially devoted to others until something gets in the way. They don't treat me right. They don't reciprocate. I did such and such for them, and it's been two weeks. They never said thank you. They never sent me a note. They never gave me something in return. That's how our world works. You know, that's the norm. I'm not saying saying thank you, sending notes, giving something to somebody is wrong. But the world does that. Even the task gatherers, these self-centered, selfish individuals, greedy, marking up the taxes they collected, they'll do that. They'll show love to somebody who loves them. That's not a rewardable situation. So he goes to verse 47. And again, uses another conjunction with and. Another if, third class condition, which is generally true. And he says, and if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? That is a normal process. Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Don't think you're high and mighty as a Jew because you have these special greetings. You say, shalom. Peace. Brother, it's nothing special. The Gentiles do the same thing. Greeting for greeting. Brothers are respectful. They express good wishes, which is what that greeting means. But even the Gentiles, who are ungodly and heathens, who have very shallow relationships, will do this same thing with their greetings. How did you talk to each other when you came in the door this morning? Good morning. What do we call that? Greeting. Then we ask the question, how are you doing? And if I were to take a test right now, all the people that you asked that question of, to, for you to give me the answer they gave back. God would have to replay it because I wasn't there. And honestly, most of us don't remember because we aren't even paying attention. It's just a greeting. So the next Sunday when you come in and somebody asks you how you're doing, you say, I'm, I'm found out I'm dying of cancer. And they go, oh, that's good, good. And they move on. <laughs> because they aren't even paying attention. It's just a greeting. My dog died. My wife died. My son died. Try it. Try it sometime. See if you get a reaction. But be careful. You've got a five-second rule. You have to correct it really quickly. Otherwise, you're a liar. We don't want you lying. I'm half kidding, but I'm just pointing out here. We do the same greetings. But do we really, really care? Hopefully we do, and some of you really do. I can't say all because I don't know. But this is what should be going on in our lives. These selfish relationships get along just fine. Love for love. These shallow relationships get along just fine. Greeting for greeting. You're not in my way. I'm not in your way. All right, we'll move on. But he presses them when he says in verse 48, Therefore, Based on what he's commanding, that you love your neighbor as yourself, he says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, no. Just crossed a major line. If I were to ask for a show of hands, I'm not. How many of you this morning are perfect? Now, maybe your spouse would say that once in a while. Maybe this week they'll come to you and say, on a Tuesday at 10 o'clock in the morning, you have reached perfection. And then your response back cancels it out. Because you say, I know. 
and you got to work at it again. He's talking about a word here that we're fully used to. It's the idea of being complete, of being mature, full grown, having reached your end in Christ. So you're Christ-like. Remember in 39, you turn the other cheek, 40, you give the outer coat, 41, you take the second mile, or you give the, the second mile, and 42, you are sacrificially giving to others. You're perfect. Not in the sense that you're sinless. That's not what the word means. It means you're complete. You've arrived. You've come to the end that God desires for you. Remember what Paul promoted? Colossians 1. This is what drove him. It's what woke him up in the morning. Colossians chapter 1. Love these verses. But I'm just going to focus on verse 28. Colossians 1.28. Paul says, we, because it's Paul and Timothy writing to them, we proclaim Him, Jesus Christ, in verse 27, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, in order that we may present every man complete in Christ. This is what got Paul out of bed in the morning. This is what caused Paul to travel from city to city to city and visit the first place he went to was a jail because of what he was proclaiming. They hated him. When he got in jail, he shared the gospel. Philippian jailer comes to Christ, different ones came to Christ, different responses in there, and then he moved on, and he moved on. His motivation, his drive, people all ask, how could Paul do this? It's because his goal wasn't selfish. His goal was genuine love for those around him. And willingness in that genuine love to lay down his life that they may be lifted up. That small part of that is just sharing the gospel with somebody. Because typically the reason we don't is we're afraid of the reaction. They're going to think I'm a fanatic, weird, pushy, holier than thou. You mean, you're trying to tell me there's something missing in my life? And you're trying to tell me you have it and you, you can lead me? You're the guide who's going to take this poor lost individual and show them the way? I don't know how they're reacting, but we're afraid of them reacting like that. Because then all of a sudden, I don't look so good. We've got to get I out of it. You know how you spell pride? P-R-I-D-E. This is where we're letting go and letting Christ use us for his glory. Laying down our lives is us dying to self. This is what he told them. They're sitting there, and this is only the first chapter, in chapter 5, as we've broken it down. The end of this first chapter, and they're sitting there looking at him, and they're going, what is he talking about? They're astonished. They're astounded at what he's saying. This isn't like the scribes and the Pharisees. And their other response is, I can't do it. And his response back to them, if they were to come out and say that, is, you're right. You've got to drown. You've got to be spiritually bankrupt. You've got to be in the water. One, two, three, and going under. And you've got to give up and let God get all the glory and the credit for rescuing you because you can't rescue yourself. Share that with a non-believer. And see how they spell pride. They don't want to admit that. Unless God has been bringing them along, bringing them along, and you're the one in the series where they're ready. They're ripe to pick. Most of the time, it's not the case. And then we get frustrated, and we get irritated, we get mad at God because why don't you save anybody? Why don't you use me to share the gospel with people and have them come to Christ? 
And God goes, I am. Just because you're not the one that gets picked the fruit doesn't mean I'm not using you. All I told you to do was proclaim the good news. I made no promises of how many notches you get in your gun because of doing so. It's none of your business. Obey and let me take it from there. Let me share a story with you. This came from uh, John MacArthur's commentary, but I think it explains things very well uh, about Abraham Lincoln. It explains it on a human level I think we can comprehend. He says, one of Abraham Lincoln's earliest political enemies was Edwin M. Stanton. He called Lincoln a low, cunning clown. He called him the original gorilla, out loud in public. It was ridiculous for people to go to Africa, he said, to see a gorilla when they could find one easily in Springfield, Illinois. Politics haven't changed, have they? Lincoln never responded to the slander, but when, as president, he needed a secretary of war, guess who he chose? Edward M. Stanton. When his incredulous friends asked why, Lincoln replied, because he's the best man for the job. Years later, as the slain president's body lay in state, Stanton looked into the coffin and said through his tears, there lies the the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. How long did Lincoln have to wait? A lifetime. Did he get to hear those words? Nope. His animosity was finally broken by Lincoln's long-suffering, non-retaliatory spirit. Patience had won out. This is what God is asking us to be like. Is it hard? No. It's actually pretty simple. Doing it is not the hard part. Being willing to do it is the hard part. I don't want to. I don't want to look that way to other people. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy was not true. Love your neighbor and love your enemy was the message that the Pharisees refused to pass on because it was so personal to them. We need to do it. You may need to start on your knees and acknowledge before God this week. I've been very selfish. I've been very prideful. I really don't care about people in general, let alone my enemy. And so I need you to help me, God. I need you to break that pride, to take away the resistance that I'm giving your Holy Spirit, and to humble myself and to purposely begin on paper, maybe in a prayer closet, however you want to do it, to pray for your enemies. And not to stop there, because you won't. If you're genuinely praying for them, you will begin to love them. And you will look for ways to reach them and to lay down your life and maybe have them over for Thanksgiving. They're going to be shocked. They may come to your house and insult you. You don't retaliate. You don't try to pay them back. You don't even worry about your reputation at that point because you know it isn't true. Did you hear Jesus on the cross? 
I didn't do all those things. Is that what he did? I didn't threaten to tear down the temple. I'm not against the kingdom of Rome or of Israel. But I serve a heavenly father. This world is his. Always has been. Satan may be the ruler or the god of this world, but he's not the owner. And sometimes I think we cave in out of fear, out of dislike, out of anger, to the temptation to not genuinely love. And the world is going to hell one by one as that process takes place. We need to love our enemies. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you because that's exactly what you did to us. You loved us when we were yet sinners. We were as repulsive, revolting, undesirable as possible. We gave no indications that we would ever receive your son, and the majority won't. And yet you still sent him to die for the sins of the whole world. He laid down his life, and he was God the Son. Still is. We think we're little gods sometimes by the way we respond. So help us to let go of our pride. Help us to let go of our selfishness. Help us to walk by your spirit so that when we share the gospel, he can fully convict the people we're talking to, that they can see Christ in us as those who are being perfected. Give us fruit, Father. Bring individuals into this church family in the coming weeks, that have come to know you because we finally loved them and told them the truth. We thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen.